0: The title of our message today is God Keeps His Promises. We have a subtitle, The Faith of Abraham and the God and the Promises of God. But it's in a little bit interesting setting. Stephen in this chapter talks about Abraham and talks about Joseph and the promises that God made and how God fulfilled them. But he does that because he has been in a conflict with a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And you remember that Stephen is is a leader in the early church, but he's not one of the apostles. He is one of the deacons that were chosen to help take care of the Hebrew and Hellenistic widows that were in the church. The church in Jerusalem was made up of two different groups, Jews who were more Greek called Hellenists and Jews who were more Hebrew called Hebraic. And the accusation came in that the Hebraic widows were getting more of the funds coming in and that the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. And so the apostle said, "We, we don't want to leave the word of God in prayer and wait on tables. It's not that waiting on tables is bad. They realized their role was the handling of the word of God. They were the eyewitnesses to Jesus. They needed to give us the word of God. They knew what their role was. And so he said to the group, Choose from among you seven godly men, full of the Holy Spirit to oversee this. And, and in their wisdom, the accusation was that Hellenist widows were being neglected. They chose seven Hellenistic men to oversee it. And I love it. It was just like, the, the church was like, let's just choose seven guys to handle it. And problem was solved. Now we're going to meet two of these deacons that were chosen, these godly men, full of the Holy Spirit, who were fulfilling the role of a deacon, caring for the physical needs of the people in the early church. We're going to meet two of them. One of them is in this chapter. He was having a debate with some people from a synagogue, and they couldn't keep up with his debate. They couldn't answer him back. They knew the Old Testament really well. Those in the synagogue of the freedmen, they knew the Old Testament really in it well. Stephen knew the Old Testament really well. In fact, I'm persuaded they know it far better than we do. And here's why we are. We are hamstrung by technology. When I'm doing my studies and I'm thinking, where is that verse? Where's that verse? I pick up my phone. I do a search and I put I quote part of the verse. I say scripture and it tells me where the verse is. I can then go and do my Greek and my Hebrew study on the verse. I can do whatever I want to do with it. In 1995, I started pastoring in 1985. In 1995, I couldn't do that. When I thought about a verse, I had to look the verse up. I had to use a concordance to remember what word is in that verse. And I would have to go to the concordance. I'd have to look for the words and I'd have to find the verse. I could recall scriptures much better in 1995 than I can today. That's not just because of my age with my new birthday, by the way. (laughs) Some of you guys are thinking that. It's It's like when I go to a new town now. I used to go I used to go to San Diego a lot when I was younger before we had GPS's and I knew San Diego like the back of my hand when I go to San Diego today it's like I've never been there before where's my phone Where do I got to put it in where's Ruth Chris Steakhouse I don't know where it's at you've been there 30 times I know but where's it at I can't f- we get we get dependent on the technology And we do that when it comes to scriptures. We get dependent, and when you're studying the Bible, and this is for all of us that study the Bible, we get dependent on it. It makes studying quicker. We're able to get through things faster, so there's positives, but they all knew the word of God really well. So when they couldn't defeat the arguments of Stephen, Stephen is, is, is debating with them. They can't stand up to his arguments, so they attack him personally. Now, you learn in debate class that this is exactly what happens, that when someone can't handle your argument, that they will attack you personally. And you also learn in debate class that when you can't handle their argument, when they make a good point and you don't have an answer for their point, the last thing you do is attack them. They teach you not to do that because when someone attacks you personally, it's really easy for you to say, why are you calling me stupid? You know, I mean, let's get back to the point of the argument. It's really easy to point out what they're doing, but this is exactly what they do. They can't keep up with the argument of Stephen. So they say, you're a blasphemer and they get false accusers who accuse him of being blasphemous of God, blasphemous of Moses, blasphemous of the law and blasphemous of the temple for accusations of blasphemy and they arrest him and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of Israel. The high priest is there, the chief priests are there, the Sadducees, the scribes are there, the very people that condemned Jesus because Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin. Stephen is now standing before them just a couple of years later. And they are he is accused of blasphemy on these four different levels. Now, I wanna show you this. This we read last uh, two weeks ago. This is Acts 6, 11 through 13. And I'm going to point out the four different accusations of blasphemy in this. It says, then they secretly they couldn't they couldn't hold up to his arguments. So then it says, then they secretly induced men to say, in other words, false witnesses. We have heard him speak blasphemies or blasphemous words against Moses. There's the first one and God. So they get false accusers to say, we've heard him speak blasphemy against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to the council. This is the Sanhedrin. They have the power to imprison. They have the power to flog and they are going to kill him. Spoiler alert. This is the first martyr of the church. He's gonna defend his accusations of blasphemy and he's gonna indict them. For not receiving the Messiah that clearly came from God they will be enraged and they will kill him now what is it the two accusations been so far blasphemous against Moses against God and so they seize him and they brought him to the council they also set up false witnesses who said this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place that's the temple and against the law so here's the four accusations He has blasphemed God, Moses, the temple and the law. Now, later on this week, we're not doing it today. We're not going through this whole passage because we'd be here forever. But later on this week, look at the breakdown of this passage. You're going to see that he defends himself against the blasphemy of God today in our study. Next, the blasphemy of Moses, then the blasphemy of the law and then the blasphemy of the temple. He covers all four of these accusations. What he's gonna do now is talk about God. We're gonna read passages that are gonna tell us all about God. And listen to hear if you can hear one blasphemous thing against God, one thing that isn't orthodox, one thing that would be out of Judaism when he speaks about God. Everything he says about God and God's interaction with Abraham and Joseph, because what he's gonna do is make his way through the Old Testament in this passage for a defense. Why would he do that? Because he's talking to Jews, to the Jewish council to people who came in. If I'm talking to someone who's Jewish, I'm ready to go to the Old Testament really quick. If I'm witnessing to someone who know, who's Jewish, I'm ready to go talk about a few passages in the Old Testament. If I'm talking to someone who's not Jewish and not familiar with the Bible at all, I'm coming at it in a completely different way. This is being led by the Spirit and this is just wisdom on how you handle it. Why would you talk to someone who doesn't believe in the Old Testament about how a uh, uh, passage fulfilled by Jesus in the Old Testament to someone who doesn't believe it, but someone who does believe it, now it's like an open door, right? Let's look at some Old Testament passages. So that's what Stephen does. So let's pick this up. And we are gonna talk about promises as we make our way through here, because he talks about the promises made to Abraham and how God kept them and God did it without Abraham. In fact, we we could sum, sum his argument up like this. The God of glory did for Abraham all these things in spite of Abraham. That's his argument. That's the argument that he's going to make. It's not because of Abraham. So in verse one of Acts chapter seven, then the high priest said, are these things so? Now this high priest is either Caiaphas or Annas. There were two high priests in their day. Annas was the high priest. The Romans removed him and put in his son in law Caiaphas. Both of them are called high priests. Jesus stood before both of them. He stood before Annas first and then before Caiaphas. And it's like a president today. If you meet a next president, you would say, Mr. President. So Annas was called high priest, Caiaphas was called high priest. So we don't know which one this is. We could be confident it's Caiaphas because he's the acting high priest, but we know that the Jews saw Annas as the acting high priest and Caiaphas as a puppet high priest put in by the Romans. So we don't know, but it's the high priest. This is important. This is the guy that would go into the temple once a year and make the sacrifice. This is the guy that oversees the whole temple complex. And there are chief priests who are there. There are scribes, there are Pharisees, there are Sadducees. they're, they're, They're all there in the council of the Sanhedrin. And so he says to them, are these things so? Now, for a Christian, this ought to be like a dream come true to share your faith. You want someone to say, are these things so? Because now you can talk about Christ. It's like when Paul, when the Philippian jailer said to Paul, What must I do to be saved? What? What? It'd be like if you sat down on a plane and you started talking to someone and a door opened up and you start talking about going to church. And they said, well, what do I need to do to become a Christian? You bet. What? What? What do you wait? Are you ready for that? Would you be able to explain to them what they need to do to be a Christian? What the sacrifice of Christ was, why it was necessary and what Christianity is all about? So the Bible gives us this instruction in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It means to set apart. Have your heart set apart for God. Don't, be, don't sanctify the world in your hearts. Don't sanctify your flesh and your desires in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who, who asks of you the reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear now, let's talk about that meekness of fear in a moment but you need to be ready to give a defense for anyone who would ask of you I'm afraid that many Christians aren't that if we're asked to give a defense we just would not be able to do it and I'm going to encourage you to do your homework. I'm doing so much more when it comes to the area of apologetics and preparing you, talking about the reliability of scripture, the historicity of Jesus, the evidence for the empty tomb. There's so much evidence for what we believe that's out there. But when we're in a family setting and one of the nephews says, I don't follow God anymore because the Bible was written by men. And we're like, okay, awkward silence we don't quite know how to respond and react to it my encouragement is to get to know the Word of God get to get to know the arguments I've said before there's only about 20 arguments that are out there against Christianity and then varieties of them it doesn't take that long to learn them and so when someone says you know the Bible was written by men we can't trust it I like to ask do you trust anything written by men what if you're in medical school and you're reading a medical book written by men do you trust that so why do you reject the Bible if God used men to write that, but you don't trust other things? See, it's not a good argument to say it wasn't written by men. You've got to you got to test it on the merits of what it says. And so why, why don't you show me in the Bible instead of just saying it's written by men, I reject it. And then you got to if you're going to not be a hypocrite, you have to reject everything written by men. So now you're going to have to go back to the book and show me why you don't trust the book, why you think the book is inaccurate because it was written by men. So there are ways in which we can defend those little shocking statements that we don't know how to deal with them and be ready for it. And I encourage you. Now, if you are, if you've never been involved in apologetics and apologetics is not apologizing for Christianity. Oh, I'm so sorry. I want to tell you about Christianity. That's not apologetics. The word apologia in the Greek is in defense of. So if I had a sentence in the Greek, this man came at my wife and I defended her. It would say in the Greek, this man came at my wife and I, apologia, I defended her. I would use the word apologia, that's what it is. So what you're doing when you are involved in defending, that's the word here, uh, be ready to give a defense of your faith is the word apologia. Be ready to give it. Now, if you don't know, if, if you can't defend the historicity of the script of Jesus, the reliability of scripture. If you can't defend the argument, if there's evil in the world, uh, 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 if God's good, why is there evil in the world? Why does God allow suffering? These questions that are brought up, like I said, and these are the uh, variations of these questions are hit. And there are answers to these things. And there's so much good evidence for them. If you can't cover these things, then let me give you a couple of resources. And they're going to be helpful. Number one, for the very basics, if you are new to defending your faith and you, have, you don't know anything about it at all, if you read this book, it's gonna give you tools to be able to do it. And the book is Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Faith. It's not an elementary level book. It is a, it's a pre-grad book. It, it's, it doesn't go into great detail, but it will give you the, the stuff that you need. It's an easy read. And you can get it in Kindle and you can get it in an audiobook. so you can listen to it while you're driving back and forth. Once you've read that, or if you if you know those basics and you're ready to get into something deeper then a book by Josh and Sean McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. This is the book that Frank Turek read that caused him to become a Christian. Somebody challenged him. Hey, if I give you a book, will you read it? He said, I'll read it. And he gave him evidence that demands a verdict. And when he read it, he didn't know there was so much evidence for Christianity. And he was moved by it. Now, now you could get you could get the old version. If you buy one, if you buy the version that is just by uh, Josh McDowell, that's the older version. His son, Sean McDowell, became a professor and went to his dad and said, Dad, your book is outdated. And there's some mistakes in it, which must be a tough thing for a son to say to someone who's an apologetic like like Josh McDowell, whose book has helped many people, saying there's some things that are inaccurate in your book. So he told his dad, let's, let's rewrite it together. Let's put out a new edition of your book. So when you order evidence that demands a verdict, order it by Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell. Get the one with both of them in it and it's updated. I think it was written, updated by them in, in 2009 or so. It's got a lot of the latest arguments that are in it, but what this is going to do if you take time to read these two books and they're not super lengthy, but if you take time to read them or listen to them, I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I, I drive so much. We've got two campuses. I live in Oro Valley. The church is on the east side of town. Church is on the west side of town. I drive a lot, so I listen to them. But when I listen to an audiobook, I listen to it twice at least because I get distracted. Right? Car almost kills me. i Wasn't listening at all to what was being said. So when I listen to it, I have to listen to it a couple, three times. And and it's an okay way to do it. All right. If you have the book and you read it, you can highlight, you can underline, you can mark references, you can dog ear it. You can do what you got to do to be able to get back to the information. All right. But anyway, I just encourage you to be like Stephen. Uh, Be a good apologetic. Let's all be apologetics, uh, uh, apologists. Let's all learn how to defend our faith when it comes to um, being asked about it. He was good at it. Are these things so? Now look at his response, verse two. And he said, brethren and fathers. That's very respectful. He's standing in front of a hostile crowd. People who are like you, you had all these blasphemies. Are these things so? Brethren, fathers, there's no reason for us to get defensive. There's no reason for us to get angry. There's no reason for us to get like we are trying to explain our position. In fact, I like what Craig Kokel says in his book, Tactics, if you get like that, you've already lost. If you, what, when, if we are insecure in our positions, oftentimes we respond that way. We become overly defensive, we become argumentative, we become angry because we don't, we're not confident in our position. Here's what I suggest instead. If you are insecure in the position and somebody brings up a point, it's really good to go, I've never considered that. Let me take some time to look up, look that up. You mind if I get back with you later on? That's a really good response. And I'm, I'm not afraid to do that at all. I'm not afraid if somebody asks me a question, that's a hard question from the Bible to go, you know what, I don't have an answer for you, but I'll look it up and get back to you. Hey, and nobody knows everything, right? So it's never a bad thing to say, I don't know. Some people are so prideful, they can't say, I don't know. Get that out of you. I don't know. But don't be angry. Don't be bitter. Don't strike back. If somebody, if you're at a dinner table at Thanksgiving and one of your relatives says, Christianity has done more harm in this world than anything else. Don't don't go, no, it hasn't. (laughs) You know, just say simply, why do you think that? Get them talking. What kind of harm have they done? What kind of harm have we Christians done? Do you think there's anything we've helped? Where do you think we've helped? What about the communists? Haven't they done a lot of, didn't they kill hundred million people in the 1900s? I'm just wondering, just asking a question. Could it be they've done a lot more harm than Christians? See, I mean, you just stay in a respectful position. If you do, you're going to catch a lot more flies with honey than vinegar. I hate to fall back on that, that saying, all right? But it's just true. He, so he's very respectful. Brethren, fathers, the God of glory. What is his accusation? You have blasphemed Moses and God. He goes to the most important one God. He deals with God first. And he says, the God of glory. Now, again, they know the word of God, they have it memorized. These Christian leaders memorized the Old Testament. And the God of glory is only used one place in the Old Testament and it's Psalms 29 where it says the God of glory thunders. And so when he says the God of glory, they know he's making a reference to Psalms 29. He's gonna start talking about the God of glory. And as you listen to what he says, see if he says anything blasphemous or negative about God. That's his point, okay? Here's what he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia that's Iraq before he dwelt in Haran Canaan is here Iraq is here and Haran is somewhere in the middle okay he called him out of Mesopotamia Abraham went to Haran and he said to them get out of your country out from your relatives and go to the land that I will show you now he's summing up what's being said let me give you in Genesis what it says Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, that's one, from your family, that's two, from your father's house, that's three, and into the land that I will show you, that's four. Those are the four things he's going to do. Leave Iraq, uh, leave your father, leave your family, go to Canaan. Okay? What does Abraham do? It's really a funny study if you do it. We're not going to do it today, but it's really a funny study. He uh he, he leaves Iraq and goes to Haran. And he takes his dad and, and his nephew Lot with him. So he did one of the three in the beginning. <laughs> and this is our father of faith. God tells him four things to do. and He's like, I got one. There I am. I'm in Haran. And the Bible calls him a father of faith. Why? Because faith the size of a mustard seed moves mountains. It's not that Abraham had a great deal of faith because he didn't. We're gonna, We'll see a couple more points where he didn't have it. So he goes to Haran now you say, well, at least he left Haran, right? Well, yeah, let's read that. Um, it says, and he came to the land of the Chaldeans. He came from the land of the Chaldeans, it came out of the land of the Chaldeans. That's four verse four. And from there, when his father died, he moved him to his land in which he now you now dwell. He went to Haran until his dad died. And then who is the he in the middle of verse four that moved him out? God. He dwelt in Haran, his father died, he moved him to the land which God would dwell. He's saying the God of glory, when Abraham was disobedient and stayed in Haran, when his dad died there, then God moved him into Canaan. Then he had to bring him down. But he still brought Lot with him, right? You got Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole thing that happens. So he still hasn't been obedient up to this point. He's only been partially obedient but God's doing what God has promised to do anyway. He is faithful. So it says then, and God gave him no inheritance in it. Abraham was a sojourner in the land. He was looking for a city whose foundation was built by God, not even enough to set a foot on, but even when Abraham had no children, he promised to give him, to him for a possession to his descendants forever. Now we hear that and we think, okay, so Abraham doesn't have any kids. In fact, his name is Abram, which means father. Okay, that's what Abram's name means. And he doesn't have any children. And God says, I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants. And your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And Abraham's like, I have no kids. And this one, Eleazar, is the heir of my house. And God says this Eliezer will not be the heir of your family, but one from Sarah will be the one that will bless all nations. So God's going to use Abraham, one man called out of 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 Iraq, who is not completely obedient to bring the Messiah that's going to bless all nations so that some two billion people on planet Earth today are Christians. Now, I'm not saying they're all Christians, but I do want to say this, that different traditions doesn't make them not Christians. The way that they live in different cultures, speaking different languages, having a different liturgy, liturgy and church looking different than us doesn't make them not Christians. OK, sometimes if they, don't look, they don't look like us then they're not Christians. Maybe you're not correct. Maybe you're not even close to being correct. So it has happened that God has blessed the entire nation. Now, Abram, is, his name means father. He doesn't have any kids. So when people say to him, and he's 75 years old, Abram, um, how many, Abram, oh, your name's Abram. Father, how many kids you got? None. Okay, Abram. All right, good. So then Sarah decides that they need to help God out. A little bit more time passes, and Sarah goes, why don't you take my handmaiden, Hagar, go into her and have a child by her? Which means that they would be, he would become a concubine. So there were wives and there were concubines in these days, and concubines would have children for them, and I won't go into all of what it is. It's sad, is what it is. Um, But he takes Hagar, has a child, Ishmael, by him. And then God comes back to him and says, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a child. And he goes, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. And God says, no, but the promise of child shall be through Sarah. And I'm going to change your name. Abraham now was able to say, what the people that come meet him and say, what's your name? Father, how many kids you got? One. His name is Ishmael. He's right over there. Cute little kid. That's my my kid. So God says, I'm going to change your name now. Sarah's going to bring the child forth and I'm going to change your name now. And your name is now going to be Abraham, father of many. So the next time somebody met him, what's your name? Abraham, father of many. How many kids you got? One. (laughs) Right. Didn't help him at all. But God was going to bring that child there. Now, what did God do to Abraham? God made him wait until he was 100 years old. And the Bible says his body being dead. I'm not going to tell you what that means. You figure it out on your own. All right. And and Sarah passed the age of having children. God does the miracle. Why does God wait to bring us our promises so often? Why doesn't God answer our promises right away? I wish he would. You probably wish he would. But God wants us to trust him and live in faith. And God knows you need struggle. You need difficulties. There's a passage that says that God didn't drive out all of the wild animals of Canaan because it would have been bad for them. There were lions and bears in the land of Canaan when they moved in. By the time of Jesus, there were no lions and bears. They'd all been taken out. But it took hundreds of years to get rid of the lions and bears. Now, I don't wanna, I shouldn't say I don't wanna live in a place with lions and bears, because God will send me someplace with lions and bears. (laughs) I don't really think that, I'm just saying. I don't really want to have to worry about being out on my porch and having a bear come and attack me. I don't want to worry about walking through a forest and having a lion. Ah, there's a lion there and and coming out and fighting against me. But God knew they needed it. They needed character. Difficulty brings character. When you get a small tree in the middle of a protected area where no wind blows at all, the tree stays small and never gets strong. But put a a tree up where it takes the blunt force of of the storms and of the wind and it's got a good water source and that tree will become a strong tree that will be stronger than any other. And when we go through difficulties and hardship, God is working in our lives to make us strong so we can stand strong. God did that to Abram. He's our father of faith. And when 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 God came to Abraham at one point and said to him, "Um, I'm your exceedingly great reward, Abraham. That's a great statement, isn't it? That God would say to me, Robert, I am your exceedingly great reward. The God, the creator, it should have been like, God, I'm blown away. But Abraham said to him. I don't have a child. What are you going to give me? (laughs) And God said, come outside. And you might think something else was gonna happen when he was like, get outside, Abraham. Come outside and look at the stars in the sky. I'm gonna make your descendants like the stars of the sky. Can you count them? You won't be able to count your descendants. Now, not only are the Hebrew people the descendant of Abraham, but most of the Arab people are. Not all of them, but most of the Arab people are. On this planet, you cannot number the people that are descendants of Abraham. And God waited till he was 100 to give him uh, Isaac, the pro- promised child that the Messiah would come through. But God did it all, and that's, po- that's his point. His point is, God did it, God did it, God did it. Let me read this to you. Genesis 15, five, seven, I want you to notice how many times God says, I will. And uh, let me see, is that the one I want? Um, no, I want, um, sorry, to the media team. Uh, Genesis 12, one, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Then listen to how many times God says, I will. I will make you great. I will bless and make you a great nation. And you shall be a blessing. I will make those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth will, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now this is when they're leaving haran but god said i will i will i will i will where is the blasphemy where is stephen blaspheming god all he's done is say the god of glory and despite the fact that that abram had problems god used him well we get another one like it this one is in verse six but now he spoke in this way with the descendants would dwell as foreigners in the land and then he would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, God said. So they're going to go into bondage for 400 years. That's Egypt. Now now it's going to go really quick. And like I said, we're not going to get stuck in the minutia because that's not the point. The point is that God's doing it. God's going to bring them into bondage, but God's going to judge the nations that brought them there. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision and Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. These are the 12 sons of David representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse nine. And the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. Now the first point was Abraham was not completely obedient. But God did everything God was going to do, even without complete faith and complete obedience. No blasphemy there. Now Joseph has his brothers sell him into slavery. We're not uh, so tempted just, just to teach this passage next week and talk about it all, but that's not the point. The point here is that God works with Joseph. Joseph is treated poorly by his brothers, an evil act to be sold into slavery because of envy. He finds himself a slave in Egypt And what does it say? But God, the middle of verse nine, but God was with him and delivered him out of his troubles. Is there blasphemy there? The the brothers were wicked, sold him into slavery, but God delivered him. God did it. And it says out of his troubles and gave him favor. God gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and his house. Now, a famine great and terrible came over all the land of Egypt, Canaan and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our first, our fathers first. And the second time Joseph made himself known to his brothers. It's very dramatic. They stand in front of Joseph. They don't know who he is. And Joseph is is, is harsh with them. He's like, I don't know about you guys. I don't know where you're from. You got another brother at home? Yeah, we have Benjamin at home. You go get your brother Benjamin and bring him back here. And Judah says, our father lost a son already that they sold into slavery. And if he loses Benjamin, it will be the end of him. He says, I don't care, you bring him here. I think Joseph was trying to find out whether his brothers had done anything to Benjamin. I think that's what he was trying to do. The second time they bring Benjamin back and it's a great story. He sees Benjamin and he says to them, it's me, Joseph. And they're looking at someone dressed Egyptian. And he says, come to me, look at me, touch me. It's your brother. Can you imagine what this brothers must have felt like seeing Joseph in that time and what God had done? And the second time Joseph made himself known to his brothers, see, this is a powerful story. So he hasn't even met his dad, seen his dad again. His dad thinks he's dead, been torn up by wild animals. The brothers brought the coat of their, uh, Here's what his brothers did. They, they got killed a goat, covered his brother's jacket in blood, brought it to their dad and said, we found this jacket. Could this be the jacket of your son? And they give a blood soaked jacket that they know is Joseph's to his dad. And his dad grabs it and weeps because he, he now thinks his son is dead. To him, Joseph is dead. And his brothers did all that. It says, then Joseph sent and called for his father. There was a reunion with his dad. This was very powerful. And all of his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and his fathers. And when they carried back to Shechem, laid the tomb uh, that Abraham brought for a sum of money and the son of, of Hamar and the son of Shechem. So when Jacob died, they carried his body back and they buried him in Canaan and then they became slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God did that, then God judged them and now God's going to bring them out by the hand of Moses. Now what is the second one, second blasphemy that you think he's going to defend himself against? Moses. That's what we're going to pick up next week. Now he has said nothing worthy of blasphemy about God in any of this. He's talked about what God did. He called him the God of glory. He talked about what he did and he has given them evidence that he sees God the same way they see God. He has said nothing blasphemous about it. In the next, hopefully next week, we can cover all the next three of them. We'll see. Maybe we'll cover one at a time and be a really long time in chapter seven, but who knows. But when I think of the promises of God, and this is what I want to leave you with. When I think of the promises of God and I think about Abraham being a hundred when he finally got the promises past the age of being able to have children his body being dead and yet he has children i think of the promises of god they are faithful number one i'm gonna give you four promises number one jesus said he will never leave you he's with you even if it's difficult now even if it's a dark season he's with you matthew 28 20 teaching them to observe all the things I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. God will guide us, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and this is conditional. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge God and he will direct your paths. I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do here, I don't know where to go, I don't know if I should take the new job, move to a new town, what should I do? How do I handle my children in this situation? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. and all of your ways, acknowledge him. And God will direct your paths. That's conditional. Instead of trusting in yourself, you trust in God. And God's promised he will lead you. I love this one. God will forgive us. This is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's not a genuine Christian in this place that hasn't gone to God and said, God, could you forgive me again? I'm sorry, again. Lord, one more time, if you forgive me, I'll never do it again. And stop praying that. (laughs) Pray, God, forgive me and help me to never do this again. Start praying that look for his strength. You'll learn that in that, that in your weakness, God is strong. Why would God allow us to struggle with certain sins? Because God knows that if you were immediately delivered from your sins, if you immediately were suddenly, there was no pride in you, there was no jealousy in you, there was nothing, there was no difficulty, no struggle in anything, your head would be so big you couldn't get it through a door. You would be like, God delivered me from everything and you bunch of wee Christians, let me get my head through the door here. I gotta figure out how to do that because I got delivered. No, God knows we need to be humbled. We need to know that too. We're prone to be prideful, and so God allows us to struggle. But God promised, I will forgive you. If you confess, I will forgive. Some of you need to take uh, take that promise seriously today. Confess your sins and allow God to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, because that's the second part of the promise. Not only will he forgive you, but he will cleanse you from unrighteousness. In other words, he's gonna forgive you of your sins, but he's gonna help you overcome it. So you don't keep struggling with the same sin again and again and again. Final promise. God gave us all we need for life and godliness. We don't need anything outside of this church. We don't need any new kind of philosophy or idea or theology that doesn't come from the Bible. You run into it all the time. But listen to what it says in 2 Peter 1, 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. You're going to get grace and peace the more you learn of the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Grow in the knowledge of God. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. It says, and his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us fellowship with one another where we can interact and have iron sharpen iron and help each other grow spiritually. His divine power has given us all things to pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by the glory of his virtue. God's given us everything that we need. Now, so much we can learn from Stephen's defense. And some might just say, well, he was just a deacon. No, he's a man of God. You're a man of God. You're a woman of God. You can learn these things. You can be able to give a defense for what you believe. And I encourage you, go out of your way to do the work. So you've got it. It's what you need. Let me also give you one more encouragement. This is just extra. Guys don't have to pay any more for this. I'm just gonna give it to you. There's um, a couple of good apologetics books for kids. There's one by J. Warner Wallace called Cold Case Christianity for Kids. And Natasha Crane has some things that she's put out for apologetics for kids. Get your kids this information now. So when they stand up in front of a professor and the professor says something like, there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. Your kid can go, well, in the manuscripts, your kid can start to correct them, can start to take the things that he's saying in a negative sense, and they're gonna know already. They're not learning it from some professor when they get into college. They've already learned it from you. They've been able to look at these things and get a foundation for them. And it's one of the reasons that we're wanting to do this in our Sunday school, our high school, our junior high, our high school, and among us, so we are not duped by the world, because this is the way the enemy's going after it. Stand with me, would you? I'm late, let's pray. I know that's shocking. Let's ask God to to apply this to our lives. Father, thank you so much for your word. It really is rich and deep and powerful and meaningful. What an amazing thing that we see Stephen giving his defense on the blasphemy of God by showing I don't blaspheme God at all. I believe the same thing about God that you have believed. I've never said any blasphemous thing about him. Thank you, Lord, that we get that and the rest of his defense throughout this chapter. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would help us. And I pray for those that are here that have never made a commitment to you, that you would speak to their hearts that they would make a commitment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.